We are at thus. Thus. The package starts with the word thus. Okay, so I've made an executive decision, okay, which is that we are going to only focus on, I believe, two more ideas. Uh, because I think that there's a point at which the mind says, although there are many facets to this, they are all so similar because they're all the facets of the same point that the mind starts assimilating, stops assimilating what's going on. So. There's a point at which you have to just kind of zoom out, wrap up, and move on. And I think we are approaching that point. So there are two other points I would like to get to that are very critical in this chapter, um, which are foundational. Um, and both of them are often misunderstood and, frankly, in my opinion, also misportrayed by many people, not necessarily intentionally. So I would like to make sure we cover those points. But all the other nuances and stuff, I will try to keep to the barest of minimums. Okay. Thus, since the term and its commandments clothe all the ten faculties of the soul with all of its 613 organs from head to foot. So as we said before, right, that the soul has two parts, which really can be subdivided into 613 different limbs or organs, and they are clothed in the mitzvahs through the love and fear, as we discussed Great length. Remember that way back at the beginning of the chapter? Okay. So in conclusion, it, meaning the soul, is altogether truly bound up in the bundle of life with God, and the very light of God envelops and clothes the soul from head to foot, as is written, God is my rock. I will take refuge in him. What is odd about that verse? It's very hard to hide in a rock or take refuge in a person, Right. And so the author is saying, but we understand that the mitzvahs are Hashem being in the world and our souls are clothed in the mitzvahs, then in a certain sense we are within Hashem. Okay. Um, I'm not going to worry about why he's called a rock. It's one of those things I'm making the executive decision not to derail the class on. Okay. And it's also written, with favor, or rotson, will, wilt thou encompass him as with a shield? Right, the idea being is that like a shield surrounds the person. The Rutzen, remember we spoke about the Rutzen, right? I've noticed here that the translator translated as Rutzen as favor. Mm -hmm. right. we, again, the idea that Rutzen doesn't really mean wanting in this conventional sense, although wanting could be a form of Rutzen. Um, for instance, we say that the time of Mincha on Shabbos is an ace Rutzen, it's a time of Rutzen. What does that mean? It's a time of divine favor. Okay. Um, so the Ratzvahs are Hashem's Ratzon, Hashem's will, as we discussed at length, and they encompass the person, that is to say, his blessed, his, his blessed will and wisdom are clothed in his Torah and his commandments. Okay, good. So let's summarize what we've learned up until now. Now, this is going to be the first new idea. Hence, it has been said, better is one hour of repentance and good deeds in this world than the whole life of the world to come. So if you have a choice, what would you rather? This world or the world to come? One hour of repentance and good deeds in this world is better than the whole life of the world to come. What? This world, if it means 
I mean, that's what it says here, but we have to think about what this means. Okay. I mean, if that's a realistic thing for us to achieve, then it's not to Okay. So, repentance and good deeds, yes. So it's better one hour of repentance and good deeds in this world than all of the life of the world to come. Now, before we go around talking about um, one hour of repentance and good deeds in this world, we should know a little about the life of the world to come. So, how great is the world to come? What? What? I'm going to tell you. Would you? Do you want to know? Yeah. Okay. So, one hour of delight in the world to come is greater than all the delights that this world has to offer. So think of every positive experience you could ever have, and not just you, but any person could ever have. What do you mean spiritually? I'm not sure what you're asking. You know, the world after you, you know, not you, because hopefully you, not you, but after people die. No, we're talking about the subjective experience of positive experience. But that's physical in our, in our heads. Really? Good music is physical. Friendship is physical. No. Feeling like, like you've you're, done you're, something you're, worthwhile. I mean, yeah, I mean, pizza is physical. I'm like, how good? But like, honestly, like, how much pizza can you really eat in life? <laughs> Okay. Yes, we've discussed this before, right? You, you can experience all sorts of positive things, some showers, some deeper. But take now the sum totality of all positive experiences available while being physically alive. And not just of one lifetime, but of all lifetimes put together. That's a lot of positive experience, right? Yeah. Okay. That does not come anywhere close to one moment of positive experience that's available in the world to come. Is it so positive? Okay, we're going to get sidetracked, so I'm going to say this again. Experiences are not the things you experience, they're the experience, okay? So, that's right. Nobody eats pizza because they have like a vested interest in putting Italian food in their mouth, right? Why do they eat pizza? Because it feels good, right? Right, the taste, the texture, right? The nostalgia all elicit some kind of subjective pleasure, right? It sounds so gross when you say it. I know. Like it feels good, so that's why we eat pizza. That is exactly what we do. Why would you do most things in the world? I'm sorry, it sounds really, really gross. There's like chemicals in there that make you release these hormones that are like all positive. Any kind of sugar, fats, oils. That's why we like junk food and not broccoli. I like broccoli. Yeah, but that's because it makes you feel good. Yeah. I like the texture. Potato. Oh, okay. Okay, so I I didn't realize this was going to be that complicated. Okay. Okay. There's something called experience. Experience happens inside your psyche, okay? Robots don't experience things, okay? Here, who, is anyone here um, proficient in English grammar? 
beyond, like, like you can actually go. Okay, so you have to be quiet. I want the non-proficient people, please, to participate in this exercise, okay? <laughs> that you speak English properly, but if someone were to ask you a grammar question, you'd be like, I don't know, I stopped paying attention to grammar after like fourth grade. Uh, that's non-proficient. Right, I want the non-proficient people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So I'm going to... going to write a sentence, and the first thing I would like you to do when you read the sentence is to just ask yourself, does it sound right, okay? Does that sound right? Doesn't sound right, yeah? Okay. That's step one. Does not sound right. Like something inside is like, Ugh. not, doesn't feel good, right? Okay, now, what change should I make to make it feel right? They. They. Good. So now we have a they. Went to the store. Okay. Good? Okay. So now, can you please tell me what is the rule of grammar that makes it that this is incorrect and this is correct? Versus they. Um, it's, it's, you just can't put them first. Them is in past tense? Uh, you can't put them first. They spoke to them. That's past tense. They. When do you use them? They will speak to them. It's future tense. Them By the way, tense is tense are applied to verbs, and them and they are not verbs. That is when you're referring to other people as opposed to they, which is not other people. Okay, I would like to point something out here, okay? so. You all have this little thing. It's right. It it's like, that does not feel right. Yes? Yeah. That's something that exists purely in your own experience, right? Yeah. Right now, when a computer spell checks or grammar checks, does it have that, that doesn't feel right? No. no. It's been programmed with a certain set of rules that it follows those rules, right? And you don't even consciously know the rule, right? It just doesn't feel right. Okay, now, who was the volunteer who was proficient in English grammar? Can you please tell me? Why is it them went to the store? Make everyone go, ooh, but they went to the store sounds perfectly fine. I think I'm not. Okay, well. Them is a There is a subject. rule, but we don't, I don't know. Noun and pronoun and they is an object, vice versa, right? Vice versa. Vice versa. Right? Right. Pronouns, depending, pronouns have different cases, and one of the cases that we differentiate is whether, in English, was whether it is the subject or part of the object. So if it is the subject of the sentence, you need they. So the ones doing the action are they, but if something is happening to some group of people, it is they, them, right? Yeah. But the reason why example is that, right, we could like make a computer program, right, people have made computer programs, that try and like get the rules of English grammar, and it could like grammar check for you, right? We could even do that and say, I'm just going to the rules of grammar, trying to remember the formal rules of grammar. Mm -hmm. right? okay. But if you are a speaker on mother tongue level, you don't actually have a bunch of rules of grammar. What you have is Nuts. the sense it just feels right or feels wrong. Good? Yes. That exists purely within your own psyche? Yes. Okay. What? So the same thing is like this all positive experiences, all negative experiences, all pain, all pleasure, where does it exist? In your psyche. In your psyche. Good? 
Can things happen in reality that trigger those kinds of psychological experiences? Yes. How much feel-goodness can occur in your psyche by virtue of eating pizza? Not that much. It's quick, it's quite easy, but like some total, like, then there's the feel-good of like, you know, have, being able to reflect on a life well-lived, right? That's like probably a deeper kind of positive experience, right? Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna call that, broadly speaking, that ephemeral, can you not do with the marker? Like, Sorry. It's my ear. That ephemeral sense that something just resonates as feeling right and good and true, yeah, that you can't really put into words, but it's triggered by all sorts of things in different ways, right? In Hasidus, this is often called as pleasure, okay, or delight. I don't want to get like too far into the technicalities of it. And this world provides an abundance of opportunities for someone to experience those kinds of things, yes? If you take all of that kind of experience and you bundle up, you reduce the world to just that maximum amount of experience you have. Just take everything else out, all the stuff, and just like how much can physicality produce the physical world, the physical life we live in, with everything we can do from the shallow things like eating pizza to the deep meaningful things, how much positive, pleasurable, internal stuff can that provide us? and you weigh that against one tiny brief moment of what the next world can provide in terms of positive experience, and what does the Mishnah tell us? The Mishnah tells us that one hour of delight, of pleasure in the world to come is more than all the light, pleasure and delight of this world. For Hashem. No, for the person. For the person. Which means it would really stink. It would be bad. You would be missing out if you didn't make it into the world to come, right? Wait, what tells us that? What did you say? The Mishnah. The Mishnah. The Mishnah that the second half of the Alterba quotes here in the Tanya. We're going to get to this part. Okay, so now. Would you... I'm not asking about the reality of it. Like, I know in real life things are hard, but would you, in principle, be willing to give up pizza to, you know, live long enough to see your great-grandchildren? Yes. Yeah, right. Now, in real life, when the pizza's in front of your great-grandchildren or not, it's harder to do that, right? But in principle, it seems like, you know, depriving yourself of pizza. Um, would you be willing to... Um, not for coffee, Would you be willing to <laughs> become homeless to save the life of your child? Yeah. 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 Okay, right. Not, not my child has to suffer. Like, right. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. So we understand this idea that if we're faced with a choice of extreme unpleasantness, pain, suffering, right, that something can be a positive enough, registered enough in the most positive way to make it worth it. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Okay. Have you heard of a man named Job? Job? No, Job. Not Job. Pause. Fine, right. So Job, also known in Hebrew as Eov. So um, he, his life took a very down turn. Right? What happened to Eov? Yeah, everything bad that could happen to a person short of dying. Okay. Eov. So now... There was another man, and his name was Elisha ben Avua. I'll get back to Eov in a second. Elisha ben Avua, he was a sage in the times of the Mishnah, and he decided to go off and go against Torah, mitzvahs, God, the Jewish people. And when he died, 
he was not allowed into Gehenna. Gehenna is the place where the soul is cleansed so it could go to the world to come. So the rule is like this. If you make it into Gehenna, what does that mean? You get to go to the world to come. But you have to go through Gehenna. Yeah. Which is hard. It's, it is very hard. But he was not allowed into Gehenna. Do you know why? Because Hashem didn't think that he deserved any reward of the world to come. Going to Gehenna is a good thing. Yes. Wait, There's a whole problem of people who don't go to Gehenna. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Where do you go Even like Tzadikim go to Gehenna? Or they go straight up? I mean, if you're, I mean, the holiest of Tzadikim don't go to Gehenna. If you, if you do, if you, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The two people, there's two people who don't, two kinds of people. People who have never, people who have never contaminated their soul or people who die a martyr's death. Everyone else goes to Gehenna. Wait, so what happens if you don't go to Gehenna? There's all sorts of fun stories about that, but not for right now. So, he was not... What? Well, wait, wait. Seven sons Yeah, well, I mean, these, these things, these things remind, these things remind me of what it says that if you eat from a bris mila, suda, then then it counts as eighty-four fasts. So then the question is why the altar didn't bring that in Tanya as a way to get out of fasting, and 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 the reason is because if you. Because uh, it's, you know, if you if you if you count if you do something that's keilu sinning, it's sort of sinning. Then they get to get those things that are keilu fasting. But if you actually sin, you'd actually fast. <laughs> so like, if you actually need Gehenna, then all this like little this doesn't work. Okay. No. Why not? Would make sense to say that? Do we want to? We do. We don't want to. I don't no, know. because. <laughs> so here's the thing. So, so Elisha Menavu, who was such a wicked person that the sages stopped calling him by his name, they called him Acher, which means the other guy. Why? It's not to mention the name of a wicked person. Like face? Ever. Like in the Mishnah, he's, no, he's referred to, after he went bad, he's always referred to as Acher. Anyway, so Ahar dies. He's not allowed into Gehenna. And his good friend, Rabbi Meir, um, davens that he should be allowed into Gehenna. And eventually, Rabbi Meir dies. And when Rabbi Meir dies, Hashem says, Okay, you know, Rabbi Meir, you lived a good life. As part of your reward, I'm going to let your friend Ahar into Gehenna. Oh my God, I thought you were about to say they didn't allow Rabbi Meir. No, no, no. <laughs> no. And then Ahar was in Gehenna. And how long was he in Gehenna for? A long time. Long time. No. No, 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 no. That was a different person. That's a different person. No, no, not Acha, not Acha, not Acha. He wasn't one of them. Okay. So then, Rabbi Meir, when Rabbi Meir was an old man, there was a young child who was brilliant. You might have heard of him. His name was Rabbi Huda Nasi. He ended up becoming the leader of the Jewish people, compiled the Mishnah. Okay, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi had a young disciple at the end of his life who was a teenager when Rabbi, when Rabbi Yehuda Nasi passed away. His name was Rabbi Yochanan. When Rabbi Yochanan prayed that Ahar be allowed to finish his Gehenna process and enter the world to come. The expression in the Gemara is Mut of the it's better to be punished and go to the world to come. And eventually, when Rabbi Yochanan died, and he lived a long life, by the way, Probably like close to 100 years. 
80 years, something like that, when Rabbi Yochanan passed away, um, Acher was finally free of Gehenim and went to Gan Eden, went to the world to come. So how long was Acher in Gehenim for? Well, the entire duration of Rebbe's life, minus you know, the formative teenage years, and the entire duration of Rabbi Yochan's life minus the teenage years, right? So we're talking somewhere on you know the order of 150 to 200 years, depending on exactly how the dates work. That's terrifying. Well, it's not terrifying yet. I thought we were not supposed to be <laughs> Gehenim, one hour in Gehenim, one, one. Is it worse than everything that could ever happen? Is equivalent in terms of suffering to 70 years worth of what Eov went through. Sorry, this whole 12 month for normal people. Like, if you're like, you're normal. Yeah, 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 yeah. And also, what is time? Time of year? Yeah. yeah, you're a normal person. Really? For this, yeah. You're not Acher went up to heaven, saw the angels, gazed into the glory of the Shekhinah, turned around and said, Judaism is false. I'm going to go like persecute Jews in Judaism, right? Like it's a whole level of wi- new level of wickedness, okay? I'm sorry, I don't have no story. So I'm not going to... The point is, how much suffering did, did Acher go for? A lot. Yeah, we well, do the math, right? So, Jews suffering, 10 years worth. Right? Times 24 hours a day, times 365 days a year for, say, we'll round down 150 years. Did he deserve it? Yes. Yeah. And here's the thing. Why was Rabbi Meir praying to Gehenna again? Because if you go to Gehenna, then what do you eventually get? Right. So what does that mean how wonderful it is to be in Gehenna? It's incredibly wonderful. There's nothing you possibly conceive of. Right. But think of this. Is there anything you could conceive of that, that is that wonderful, that that is that positive, that would warrant that kind of going through that kind of suffering in your mind? No. It's it, in other words, the lowest, smallest positive experience in the world to come is inconceivably beyond what we can imagine. But you know what it is? We said that all the suffering after was was justified if that's what allows us to get Which means, we know that something is better than Ganeidin. It means we're talking about something that's this. It's beyond beyond that. Okay. What happens? To the All sorts of things. No, I can't before. So, sorry to be Okay, let me explain to you what happens when a person dies. If you don't. What? You ask, you just ask. No, I don't know what you just asked. I'm going to do But I think about it all the time that you like watch your video of life. Oh, well, okay. So, so here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Okay. I, I, you asked, so I'm going to tell you. Okay? But I'm not going to make it at great length. Okay? This is the standard process. Okay? It's what happens to most people most of the time. Prophecy. Same way we know everything. It's not like we did like a research study funded by Harvard or anything. <laughs> like, let's be honest. <laughs> okay, so number one, um, just because a person is dead does not mean that they do not um, experience their body. Which means that, um, as the Gemara puts it, that the maggots are to the body as a needle is to the living person. This, of course, is conditional upon the degree to which you were emotionally invested in your in the 
sensual and physical aspects of your existence, right? So the more you are into the taste of your food, the feel of your clothes, the temperature of your shower, the more your bo- the more you are sensitive to what happens to the body as it dies and decomposes. Just say that we do feel it. Yeah. Oh, oh, why are we not feeling it? So which part of us feel it? Your soul. No, no, you feel the physical, right? Then the other thing is, is as the consciousness is freed from the body, so the idea that you like only think one thing at a time and you like remember your past vaguely, right? But you're only experiencing your present. That's a feature of your body limiting your access to your soul. So as your soul's consciousness is freed from the body, you experience all of your thoughts and all of your experiences of your whole Always. life all at once. Yes. Which is extremely, it doesn't handle it well for most people, which is extremely traumatic. Um, Crisis. Some of this is in the Tanya. Actually? Yes. Chapter 7. Yeah. 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 Anyway, then, so, so, um, this of course, this of course is, is very traumatic and the soul has to be kind of like cleansed of these traumatic, you know, realizations. So, there's a process by which the soul is, is, is kind of bombarded with the truth of how you could have lived in contrast with how you did live, and that eventually like shakes off all of the, um, oh, nice. yeah, all of those things. That's kind of like, like, this is my life. This is my life could have been. This is life I could have lived. Oh, that's the video part of the But it's not like video part, it's more like immersive experience. That's kind of Yeah. Um, soul rolling or something. No. So then, then when that was done, your soul, assuming that it is judged to be warranted, is referred to heaven. And Gehenim, the, the, all the same, all different. Like, based in Shalima. That part, were you watching the video? No, I'm saying before you go, before you go up on Gehenim, you know, like, all the stories happen, like, a horse and wagon comes, like, all your mitzvahs. That's all, like, metaphor, you realize. No, because then they're paid, and then they don't go to Gehenim. Well, that's all metaphor. So it's a question of understanding, because the contamination in your soul is not the fact that you do it, right? But as the Rambam says, you know, what's the severity of it, right? How do we understand what you did, right? And so that has to be, you know, the, the, there has to be a diagnostic process, like exactly what kind of cleansing does your soul need, right? And, 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 um, what? No, 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 there's a whole idea of truth and pleading for mercy is only in this world. That, that's just, there's, right, none there's of that. no point at all for you, like, in front of God and angels, whatever that means, and, like, they, like, look at your life, yeah. and they, like, decide, and someone speaks up for you? Yeah. Yeah, yes, 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 but not really. But yes, right? There's a yes, but they're not really fine. There's a yes. Okay. And, and then you go to Gehenna, and your soul is cleansed. Um, which is extremely painful, although it's very big deal because if you've done shuva before you die, then you at least know what's happening to you and why it's happening. And painful processes that you know what they're for and what they're about are not nearly as bad as if... <laughs> That's right. Um, and uh, yeah, and then you're ready to go into Gan Eden. Yeah. Of course, in Gan Eden, there is a technical problem because Gan Eden is, as we're going to learn, is enjoying the effulgence of the divine presence, which basically means you get to gaze at God. Which is great. There's one tiny problem. You can't handle it. Can it be really bad? You're already dead. My house is worth all that. One second. Wait, how are you? Yeah, get to God. Your soul is not a part of God. We learned this in chapter two. Your soul is a part of God the way you're a part of your father. Are you a part of your father? Or is like if your father is sitting there watching television, you can watch him watch television, right? Yeah, on a genetic level, you have more in common. You have more in common with a female chimpanzee than you do with your father. Okay, on a genetic level. What? I know. Is that amazing? 
so much for genetics being, you know, destiny. Um, it's that whole XY chromosome thing that messes up the statistics. Okay. Um, and then you go to Gan Eden. Well, that depends. Depends how many mitzvahs you have. Oh, no, 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 two different things, two different things. It's like if you come to a class and you have your smartphone and you're like really into, what's the game that they're playing now? Whatever the, I don't know. Cod? Cod? I don't know, what's the game? There was a plane, they were playing, everyone, everyone was playing Angry Birds and now I see the buffer, we're not playing Angry Birds anymore, so whatever that. Angry Birds was so long ago. Whatever it is, but you're into whatever the thing is and you're, I don't know. And you're playing a game and you're really into it. And so obviously there's, you're not able to like, be aware of what's going on in the class, right? But let's say you get rid of your phone, you let go of the fact you don't have your phone, you've processed the fact you don't have your phone, and you're perfectly at peace with not having the phone in the game anymore. And you're actually interested in the class. And you come to the class. But then you realize there's a tiny problem. A, the class is in Hebrew, and it's an advanced class in Gemara. You don't speak Hebrew, and you never learned Gemara before. So now like, you're really into the class, and like, whew, because you really, you would really like to know more about Judaism, but like that's. So this is where this is where having mitzvahs, you know, it's like you know you when you show up at a party, you should wear the appropriate clothing. So you when you show up in Ganadin, you want the appropriate clothing, i.e., the mitzvahs. Plus, it can be very tiring gazing at the glory of God. So what gives you the energy to do that? The Torah that you learned. So what happens if you go to Gan Eden, you don't have any mitzvahs, you haven't learned very much Torah? It's like getting the opportunity of a lifetime and then realizing you're not cut out for it. Is it egotistic right now to stress for myself? You asked. Anyway, then what happens after you've gazed the glory of God for a while? No. First off, you stop having side conversations in class, which makes it distracting. But the other thing that happens is that you realize that you, you start to realize that your conception, your, your, your comprehension of God is by definition limited and therefore what you're gazing at is just like uh, not really an accurate like reflection of God and you become very disillusioned by that. As in like, you know, like when you worked really hard for something and you realized it wasn't worth it. Yeah. And then you're just like, you know what, I'm going to start over. And you like have to go to like a new Gehenna where you cleanse yourself of any preconceived notions of God. And um, then you go to a higher level of Ganeidin and you get to look at the glory of God again. And you see it in a more accurate, truer way. Until, until, what do you realize? And you repeat the process ad infinitum. Yes. Why does it ever stop? Resurrection of the dead. So there's a time limit on how long you actually enjoy well, this feeling of God Like that's not. Yeah, but then, but then, but then. It out, then you yeah, but each time it's infinitely greater than the previous one. The whole thing of like when your soul doesn't like pass the thing and it has to come back down in the well. That that's not a real thing. That's not a real thing. What like reincarnation? What do you mean it's not a real thing? Like what sense? We're golems. Of course it's real, no? Souls are not recycled. If the soul comes down again, what means is that the soul branches off. So some of, if the soul has unfinished business or something needs to correct or assist it, it goes down again. Yeah, but that's... that's a, so that answers all the questions like um, what's going to happen when Mashiach comes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Oh my goodness, one second. So I'm not right now fixing the person before me's problem? You are. You don't get the full... I am, right? It's his soul and you. I hope it's not his soul and you because, you know, then you're going to have, like, you know, fertility problems. You wouldn't want that. That's what it says in Kabbalah. If a man's soul comes from a woman's body, it's, like, not a good thing. You really don't want that to happen. Does that ever happen? It does. Is that no, the kids struggle for other reasons. Well, I'm so scared. I mean, but it's, it's possibly one of the reasons. It is possibly a reason. Oh, but 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 if that's the reason, then 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 the no medical thing will be able to solve the problem. So. That's so sad. Yes. Um, it is. So you really hope that's not the case. What do we mean? That it should have a greater greater perception of God. Um, and are we able when we go to visit, like you know how like there's Kessler and all those worlds? Like I would love to go see what that's like. You want to go see Kasser? Sure, you can see Kasser. When I'm good, I'm like. Sure. So, yeah, I can go with it. Yeah. Go see Kasser. Well, not, not at first. Well, later. Later. <laughs> it's a tiring process. It is, which is why you need food, which is make sure you should learn some Torah before you get there. No, I know, but you don't want to get there. However, I know you are, it's still never going to help us. What? Here's the problem. Okay, imagine we described what it was like to eat pizza. You've never eaten pizza before and you couldn't conceive of food actually being a pleasurable experience, right? Talking about the objective facts of something doesn't give you any sense of what it's subjectively like, right? Okay, so here's the thing. <laughs> what is it like, the world to come, is to enjoy the, is a state where one enjoys the effulgence of the divine presence, which is the pleasure of comprehension that no created being in social compre- Okay, what is it? It's before that. So what does that mean? You are get to comprehending God. Do you know that frustrating thing when you're like talking about God in a class and you really don't know what you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. Wouldn't you like it that if all of a sudden like God made sense to you the way like everything else makes sense to you? Yeah. But without like losing the significance of the fact that it's God? Mm-hmm. Right? The way that like sometimes when you discuss something for a long period of time and you don't really know what you're talking about and then you finally see it in real life like, oh, now it all clicks, right? Mm-hmm. That's what it's like, except with God. Except it's like that over and over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. In, in, in infinitely deeper ways. With, with periods of del- disillusionment and disappointment in the middle that makes you realize that what you have is actually only a shallow, superficial reading of God. So basically, Gan Eden is just you get to know God better and better, forever. It's the resurrection of the dead. Mm-hmm. And since he's the source of every positive thing in the universe, or that could ever be, there's nothing more po- as positive as getting to know God. So there you go. Yeah. Which is the, the, the thing that you would probably wish for if you had any conception of what it was like. But the fact that you don't is because you don't have a conception of what it's like. Yeah. Right. Yes? So the really, really bad people who don't go through this process, what happens to them? Oh. What's well, funny you should ask. There was a Jew who was from a town called Nazareth. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) So what happened to him? (laughs) And he was a naughty boy. (laughs) And he, 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 he did some sorcery stuff. And he convinced Jews to forsake the God of their fathers and worship idols. And the basin stoned him to death. Erev Pesach. I don't think stoning is, I think stoning is better. 
than what set what you just made Henry sound like. Oh, sure it is. This is just the dying part. Then, then, then. According to the Gemara. That's the. Assuming it's the same one, but we're going with what the Quran says. Anyway, then later on there was a man named Uncleus who was considering whether or not to convert to Judaism, and he figured, like, who should he ask? You think I can ask any Jews, right? Because the Jews are biased. You should ask the enemies of the Jews. So who are the big enemies of the Jews? Well, that was one of them. So he asked him, he says, well, in, 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 you know, in the world to come, like, who's deemed really important? And, and uh, this Jew from Nazareth said, well, the Jews. And he says, well, should I convert? He says, well, you should know that anyone that messes with the Jews, it's like messing with the pupil of God's eye. It's not a good idea to like start up with the Jews. So. And then he says, oh, by the way, what, what's going on with you in the afterlife? Now, this has been a while because um, this Jew, he lived in, the, he was a disciple of Rabbi Shubham Prachia, and Onkelos lived well after the destruction of the Second Temple. So we're talking, say, 300 years plus-ish, something like that. And they met. Using necromancy, how else? I mean, he was dead already, right? Anyway, so he asked him, he says, well, I am punished with, and I quote, boiling feces, which is obviously a metaphor because there's no boiling feces, you know, not physically, but, and um, because that is what happens for one who mocks the sanctity of the words of the sages. And um, yeah, and uh, according to Kabbalah, he's he's uh, he's still there, <laughs> going through that um, tormenting process, which is not te- technically not really a Gehenna process because he's just kind of stuck there. It's rather unpleasant. So you asked. Right. Fascinating. Yes. While we're on the topic. Yeah, but yeah, while we're on the topic, aren't there also? I mean, I also not understood, but like souls that aren't even allowed in there and they're like in this world. Yeah, yeah sometimes, sometimes the souls wander around. Yeah, yeah, sometimes there are souls that like prey on the weak and they possess other people. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Do you get to see Malachim? Not really, sort of. Malachim are like... How do you like this? How, how do you... I feel like you answer like you know. Because I read books by prophets. It's like... What's the capital of China? What's the capital of China? What's the capital of China? How do you know? Were you there? I wasn't there. I read in a book. I assume the people that wrote the book weren't lying to me. Do they wait to come collect them? No. Okay, I, I do want to point out that everything I'm telling you is just what it says in the books. I have no idea what this actually means because it's not anything I've any remotely experienced. That's not friends and family goes away to like the No. No. So they meet up there. Maybe. It's what an interesting discussion. So we say all sorts of things. Because you have to. Okay, this is annoying me. Um, can you please... Where's the Rambam? You know, a lot of stories. Where's the Rambam over here? Okay. 
Okay. All right, so you've heard of the 13 principles of faith of the Rambam? You know all of them? You know all of them? Okay, well, you should know them. So that's the Rambam's introduction to a chapter of Mishnah called Chelek. Um, because every Jew has a portion of the world to come, a chilek in the world to come. And um, he discusses the whole idea of afterlife, reward, punishment, and in that he gets into the 13 principles of faith. So he talks about different, different groups of people and what they think about the afterlife. And he says, the first group are those people that think that the good in the afterlife is that they, they get to eat and drink um, without having to do any effort and work, um, and that they have like very nice houses and everything with like nice, with nice silverware uh, and... and, and and there's rivers of wine, and um, you know they get to eat all sorts of great food, okay, um, and all sorts of stuff. There's another text where he writes like the stupid Ishmaelites thing. Yeah. Um, Ishmaelites. <laughs> he says it. Hatipshim <laughs> Ishmaelim. That's what he says. Like, didn't he also call Muhammad like the madman? Yes. <laughs> I'm afraid of no one. I might be living under the Sultan, but. Okay, and then they think that the evil of Gehenna is like it's a place of burning fire where they like roast bodies alive and all sorts of stuff like that. Yes, and these people bring proof for this ideology because they see like that's what's written in 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 the works of our sages if you take them literally. That's what it sounds like. Okay, then he goes on to say. So he says, most of these people, when they read these books, and, and the, most of the stuff I've seen written about the afterlife write things this way, and the people believe it as if without realizing that there's a deeper inner intent. Um, and they think that everything has to be understood quite literally. And they get very upset if everyone tells them that these are metaphors. Yeah. And... Um, and this is what's true of most, most illiterate and ignorant Jews have these beliefs. Um, and even some sages who, who don't take the time to actually reflect on the deeper meaning of things. Um, 
And these are improper beliefs. And uh, this group of people is just, you know, intellectually impoverished. And we should have compassion for such foolish people. So all the stories are true, okay? I know, I know. But, but obviously it's not... Like, right, because they're not physical, physical. So you have to think and you have to learn very deeply. Just staring at the Shekhinah. That's more kind of... Yeah. But the thing is, if you imagine staring at the Shekhinah, it's like a person like gazing at a beam of light. That's also like... Right. All these things, you have to understand what these things mean, right? We don't know what it's like to stare at the Shekhinah. That's right. So we have to get examples and analogies and books and discussions and stuff. That's what I was going to talk about. What does it mean to stare at the Shekhinah? What does it mean to understand the Shekhinah? Blah, blah, blah. And why that's good and why it's, you know... But instead, we got sidetracked by finding out what happens to, you know, if you're, like, not such a great carpenter. Do you know why the Jews, by the way, do you know why the Jews killed, do you know why the Jews killed him? No. Because, because he was a carpenter. Like, that's not a dignified profession for a Jewish boy. Lawyer, doctor, rabbi. But it's like, you know, it's like an embarrassment to the whole tribe. Is a carpenter? It's such a gayish profession. No, Okay. You're allowed to mock anything that's idolatry. That's the rule. No matter how much love you have. I know. No matter how much time we learn, we're still not gonna have a good time in Canada. No one has a good time in Canada. I believe, I believe there's a source that says that regular people go to Gehenna for somewhere between three to four months. About three to four months for most people. Don't don't think about it. Just remember every time just remember every time something happens in this world that is unpleasant, that can actually like be a cleansing thing for your soul. And and, and the ratio is like the movement of shadows towards the movement of the sun. So the Ramban says, so like the sun moves in the sky, how much the distance of the sun traverses in the sky? Like how, what's the distance that the sun traverses the sky? You just look up at the sun and it moves, like, say, in an hour. Like, how far has it moved? You know, talking thousands upon thousands of miles. How far has the shadow on Earth moved? Not much. Right. So, a little tiny discomfort and inconvenience in this world has a huge cleansing effect. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you should rejoice, right, when you lose your wallet, as the Altarba says in the end of chapter 12 of the Garrison Chuva. So happy to have that. Yeah. It's nice when you think about it. Where people go where something bad happens to you and they go, Baruch Hashem. Right? Yeah. Okay. Fine. So, the world to come is the state where one enjoys the effulgence of the divine presence. What is effulgence? Does anyone know what effulgence means? One time I was shocked. I asked this in a class and someone actually knew what effulgence meant. Is it like effulgence? No. No. It's effulgence. And effulgence is a radiating or flowing outward. So, you know, something that radiates or flows out of something. So what is the, the effulgence of the divine presence? Right? This, is, this is easier if you read it in the Hebrew, actually. What's it mean, bro? It's called Ziv Hashchina. The oh, root. <laughs> but the translator had to say Fulgence. There's so many other words you can use. Okay, now, what we have to understand is why, what's this idea of the ray, the Ziv? Like, what's the emphasis here, okay? So we have to understand a little bit about the concept of a ray. So we're going to use the analogy of the sun, okay? 
Now, I want, to, I want you to ask, I want you to think about the following. Number one, can we all agree that seeing is the opposite of not seeing? Yeah. yeah. That, we all agree with that idea? Okay. And we all agree that um, when the sun isn't around, then we can't see? Broadly speaking, I realize, you know, like maybe there's the moon out, but we're going to ignore the moon and we have all the artificial light. We're going to ignore that, right? But just regular out in nature, right? The sun has set, right? It's below the horizon. Yeah. Okay. You can't see, right? So the sun enables seeing. Good? Okay. And the sun enables seeing by radiating off this light, right? So it's the light of the sun that enables us to see. Good? Okay. So that, based on that logic, right, the, the more light we have, the more we should be able to see, which makes sense, right? Because like early, early, early dawn, can you see very well? No. no. And you raise up the, um, the, as the sun rises, right? There's more light, you can see better, right? Makes sense? Okay. okay. So then what happens if you like decide to turn around and stare at the sun? Can you see better? No. Why not? So it's interesting, right, that if you look directly at the sun, now the sun has the opposite effect, right? Instead of enabling seeing, it negates seeing, right? It has a blinding effect, right? That makes sense? Yeah. Okay. Good? Okay. So I'm going to ask you a question. What is the ray of the sun? Not as a physical idea, but as a conceptual idea. What is the ray of the sun? Contract What? Like contract it? No. The ray of the... What? Allows you to see it. Allows you to see what? The ray of the sun is what allows you to see the sun? Well, we've already established that if you look at the sun, it's not so good for your seeing. What? It allows you to benefit from the sun. What? It allows you to benefit from the sun. Very good. Very good. Okay. So if we let the sun... This is not the sun. You're not supposed to draw the sun. That is a placeholder to represent the sun. Okay? You're not supposed to draw the sun. That's a person. Good? That's a tree. It's an apple tree. Okay. Person. I think it's has some very interesting <laughs> physiology, but okay. So now, okay. The person's eyes looking, looking at the tree, right? Okay. And then what do you have? So what do you have here? You don't just have the tree, because if you had the tree, the person wouldn't be able to see it. What else do you have here? You don't have the sun, because the sun is over there. What do you have? Like. You have the, what's called in Hebrew, ziv, the ray of the sun. Mm -hmm. And the reason we call it the ray, and this is important, why do we call it the ray of the sun? Because it's not the actual sun. Because, well, it's not the actual sun, it allows him to... See the tree. It's, right, it's the benefit, it's the effect that the sun is having on his seeing, right? Uh -huh. Okay? Mm -hmm. Okay? So, over here, over here, this is called, right, so when he looks over here, what does he see? He sees... He sees the tree and the ray of the sun. Right, he sees both. Right? Now what you're noticing is that you need, right now, if I took the tree away, could you see the ray of the sun? No. No. Right? Because 
the ray of the sun, right? What it does mean to see the ray of the sun is you're seeing the illuminative quality of the sun. But illuminative means it's to illuminate something, right? Mm -hmm. It's to shine on something. So in some sense, right, the tree is both the object of his sight, but it also reflects to him a sense of this illuminating quality of the sun, which is the ray of the sun, right? On the other hand, if I put his eyes over here, and I was gazing up at the sun, right? <laughs> now, what is he seeing? Nothing. He sees the sun. But the problem is when you see the sun, you go blind, right? Now, this is very important. I know that you're thinking, like, there's a little ray of the sun that comes out here and hits his eye, right? Don't think that. Think like this. When he, what is he looking at? The sun. And as a result of looking at the sun, he goes blind. So is the ray of the sun here? Is, yeah. is the ray of the sun here? I mean, it has to be here conceptually if it, if it gets to over here, right? Right. But it's completely hidden. Right. Right. It's being, it's being completely subsumed by the sun itself. Right. Whereas when he looks this way, then he sees the ray. He sees the ray. And what they're able to see the ray is that the ray is the sun is behind him, and the ray is shining on something else in this case. The tree. The tree. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So now, what happens if I replace the sun? With God. the Shina. Okay. Which is the divine presence, God. Okay, so you got that. Okay. Well, if you look at God, what do you see? God. You see God. Well, the thing is, you can't see God, so your psyche explodes. It doesn't really explode, it more like melts away as if it never existed. Okay. So that's not like an option, right? Right. Okay. No looking at God. On the other hand, you know, you could look at something else, right? What could you look at? You could look at you could look at the world, a world. And when you look at the world, you don't just see a world. You see the you see a world illuminated by And if you're focused more on the, the fact that it's being illuminated by God and less on the world, right? Yeah. Then you are more aware of the, right. the presence, and that's the ray. Because this idea works. Now, yeah. is this world very conducive for that? No. No. This world is like a black object. When your sun shines on a black object, what happens? Can you see the black object? No. You don't really see the black object. What's happening? You're seeing everything else. Yeah. Yeah, right. Which is right. Which is why, for instance, right. If you were in, if you were in, a, if something, if something just absorbs all of the all the light of the sun, right. You can't see it, right. There's like a black hole, whatever. Okay. Now, so our world, it's too crass to actually be illuminated by God's light for most of us. So what happens? The soul leaves this world and goes to some other world, right? And the other world, okay. It, the is a little is, is illuminated a little bit more by God's light, and what happens? You go, and this is why the idea of like the soul constantly having to go higher and higher because each time it realizes that what it, what it's seeing, as much as being illuminated by God, it's also being limited by the thing. the thing that the light is shining on, and so it tries to go to a more transparent, a more ethereal, right, a less. So forever, do I need a thing for it to shine on? That's right. Because what's going to happen if you stop looking at a world being illuminated by God and look back at God? So, is there ever a state, like a 
Okay, now you could see that this would be now. Now, wait a second. The soul loves God and wants to get close to God. Now, at, on the first hand, this is great. You get to see the illuminated by God, right? But on the other hand, you're perpetually stuck looking away from God. Like you're not actually able to actually direct, right? And is it really an ability to look at God? No. no. Ever. This is back and forth of. It's all a level of this world. A world. I mean, this is yeah, higher so spiritual world. Right, right. And, and that's what he says. So, so this is what he says. This is the pleasure of comprehending God, yet no being, even celestial, can comprehend more than some reflection of the divine light, which is why the preference is to the effulgence of the divine presence. Ziv hashchina, right? The idea is you don't get to go look at God. You get to look at what comes out of God and illuminate something else. That's a good question. That's a good question. There is an answer. Okay. And the answer is like this. What I'm going to say is, is oversimplifying the idea, but it's also true, okay? Can you please pick up something? Anything. Okay. Very good. You picked up the stapler. Now, I would like you to pick up the table. Yes. Very good. Okay. Now, what I would like you to do is pick up the table, but I would like you to pick up the table from the middle of the table. So I want you to grab hold right here in the middle of the table. Let me come from there. From what? From the middle of the table. Grab right here and pick it up. You can't do that, can you? Why not? There's nothing to hold on, right? Yeah. In other words, your ability, your ability to manipulate a physical object requires that it has a border, right? Yeah. And that that border is compatible with your appendage, right? For instance, if you had a very sticky hand, that would be a problem, right? right? But since your hand doesn't I have, you might be able to pick up the middle because your hand's so sticky. Just sticky. Right. I'm saying. Right. In other words, in other words the, the table has a surface, so the border is fine, but the border is not compatible with your appendage, right? Your appendage, does, your appendage works by gripping, and so you need something small enough right. to grip, yeah. right? So if the object is entirely small, you can just like, wait, which is why you immediately say pick something. Um, you immediately grab for something you can wrap your hand around, right? Nice to pick it up. So you take one hand here and you find an edge that you can wrap your hand around. But if something doesn't have handholds, right. right? Okay. Got the idea? Yeah. Okay. Um, taste testing is a wonderful way of figuring stuff out, provided right. two things: a. Food is good. A, you can taste, and B, the thing, the thing has a tasting quality to it, right? For instance, is figuring out which math book you should be using for your seventh graders, um, if that's what you want to do, is licking the cover in a <laughs> strategy, <laughs> right? Because there is no like discernible taste difference between one thing and the other, right? You got the idea? Yes. Okay. Okay. So any kind of experiencing of anything, right, has this quality that the there needs to be a a a, a place of meeting, right, where the bounds of one are compatible with the bounds of the other, right? Was we discussed before about the value of having limitations? Yes. Okay. What are the limitations of God? 
There are none. There are none. So what happens when you try to look at God? One of two things would have to happen. Either you don't see anything, or you encounter the fact that God is not limited. But if you encounter the fact that God is not limited, then there's no you left. Right? The idea that, that you are going to experience requires there is some you know, thing where there's you, there's whatever the it is, and you have a boundary where you meet. Right. But is there not some aspect of the soul that's also um, maybe. Are we but not, then not limited when we are dead and no That's right. We're still limited. We are still limited. We are still limited. Right. Is there right. ever an aspect that, let's say, maybe you're, is there an aspect that is... By the way, I cheated here because I made it look like as if like you're looking at this world as if the world is an external thing. But actually the thing that you're looking at is yourself. Right. Yeah. yeah, you're the world. Well, think about it. If you think of the world, what are you thinking of? The sum totality of your own experiences, right? So when you're saying that you're looking at God and the world being illuminated by God, what is that world? That world is, as our sages say, the world is placed in the heart of man. So what are you looking at? Yourself. Hence, if you are dirty and full of sin, this won't work. Hence, you need to be cleansed of sin. And, right, and even if you're cleansed of sin, if there's nothing in your world which is really truly reflective of God's, that reflects God's light, <coughs> then you won't see the light of God, hence you need for the Torah the mitzvahs. But, but there's, the idea of looking at God is like meaningless. Like, well, what would that mean to look at God? To understand God, to see God, that, that's meaningless. To see how God is illuminating you, that's something you could experience, provided that you are sufficiently receptive to that, which means you're free of anything which is corrosive to that. And you contain within yourself those qualities, those things which are receptive to that, right? So free of sin, full of Torah and mitzvahs. And we can allegorize this in all sorts of ways to all sorts of interesting stories and metaphors, but that's really what it is. And by the way, let's think about this. You asked about judgment. At the end of the day, how something is within you is not an objective, fixed fact. It has a lot to do with how you see it, right? And this is the famous teaching of Al is that you are judged by God based on because how you judge others really is you judging yourself. If someone fails and you judge them harshly, well, what does that mean? What is your attitude towards failure? So that means how does the how do you how do you relate to the failures within yourself, which exist? So when you go to heaven, you're not, you are full of sin. Whereas the other person who doesn't judge failure harshly is not so full of sin. Even though the failure on an objective level might have been the same. That works very well too. Like, yes. I fail and I have to observe that way. I have to, like, I'll do better or like, I'll feel bad. Well, it depends. I mean, there's a lot of ways of doing that where you're going from being harsh with yourself to just being, um, to being irreverent and, 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 and that's not good either. That's a different kind of thing. Right, not going to be fine. I want you to get a mistake, but a genuine mistake. If you kind of like... You asked about... She asked about Avis Yisrael. The Altar Rebbe says that. Avis Yisrael is the same way that you're able to not think that... I mean, this is a trick, right? To not think that you're the scum of the universe just because you failed. If you can really feel that way about yourself, you should be able to feel that way about others. And you see this, right? People that have dealt with things in their life in a healthy way, in a good way, 
right? In an honest way, they tend to be they tend to be able to then carry that into how they view other people as well. So, so this oh world, right? Is not just some like oh, it's some world, mystical world of you know Bria or something, you know. It's like, art. Do you live in the world of Bria? Whatever the world of Bria is, is that part of your inner reality? What do you mean by it's a I'll give you an example very, very quickly. Uh, although it's not the same idea, but it's a similar idea. God willing, you're going to get married, yes? Okay. Are you going to marry a perfect man? No. Are you going to try to marry a perfect man? Yes, you are. I mean, that's what you're going to do. Do you know why? Well, are you perfect? No. And you can say that calmly and objectively. However, when you're faced with your own imperfections, are you, are you able to face that with a calmness and an acceptance and a sincerity and an honesty? Or do you do all sorts of things in your mind to cover over your imperfections? Or once you encounter your imperfect, sometimes you just like encounter things, you start moving into states of like, what's the point? Or all sorts of things, like you, right? So you're not really good with the fact that you're not perfect, right? On some fundamental level, the fact that you're not perfect is a problem for you. And as much as you know that that's wrong, but that's something you still struggle with, okay? And therefore, when you go looking for someone to build your life with, right? Well, you know, like if I have to put up with my own imperfection, why should I have to put up with his imperfection too? So like on some unconscious level, you're looking for someone who is Perfect, even though you know consciously that that's stupid, right? And welcome to the world of marital conflict because you, they're doing the same thing. Now, if you could like figure out how to like have a more, I didn't say you should, but this is the truth, right? And it takes time and maturity and like sometimes like whatever, but like at, to the degree to which you actually come to have a genuine acceptance that you are not perfect, that doesn't mean it's a free-for-all, doesn't mean life doesn't matter, doesn't mean you don't have to have responsibility, doesn't mean you don't have to take ownership of your failings, blah, blah, blah. But, but it's, it, is, it is just the fact of the matter that you are imperfect and you have failings and you have to deal with that and that's not a problem, that's the way things are. If that's something that you can bring yourself to in yourself, then you stop feeling the need to have a perfect husband. And so they're not saying the right thing, I'm not looking for a perfect husband. You generally aren't looking for a perfect husband. Like, because like, why do you need a perfect husband? You're not perfect, like perfect people. Like, let the perfect people go look for perfect husbands. This is something that Ebba writes to people in letters, that a lot of times people, they have hard times finding someone to marry or in their marriage. And what's underneath that all is, they're expecting the other person to be perfect. And why are they expecting the other person to be perfect? Because they can't acknowledge that they're not perfect. All right? Do you know your mitzvahs count for nothing if you regret doing them? Same idea, right? The same way you can do tshuva of errors, you can, God forbid, have a similar dynamic with mitzvahs. Okay. So yeah, it's God reflect. It's not a world. It's a world illuminated by God. But the thing is, that world is the world within myself, because that's the only world I know. And I don't know you except my experiences of you, which are, exist where within me. So if I'm carrying a bunch of klipa within me, I can't 
be illuminated by God. And it could be that m my physicality prevents me from ever getting rid of that. Right? There's some people that's not that way. They can experience Gan Eden even while being physically alive. But that's not normal. Most people, as long as they're dealing with the physical experiences of the body, they cannot have, fully, have a fully cleansed world inside. Okay. So there, it doesn't make sense to speak about like looking at God. He's not a lookable kind of thing. Even though he contains within him what illuminates our lives. Right? And so what is Gan Eden? Gan Eden is seeing the truth of Hashem illuminating your reality. And as you reconfigure your reality more receptive and more clean and more reflective to the God's illumination, you see God in a clearer, truer way. But that process never gets you the, the Hashem the way he truly is. And never could. For that matter, you can never know somebody else the way they truly are, right? You only see them as they are reflected in your life. So, like, if you want to get close to God, Gan Eden is wonderful on the one hand, but it's, it's fundamentally limiting on the other hand. That's if you're trying to experience God. But if you're not trying to experience God, right? For instance, that we... Um, what do we learn that happens when you do mitzvahs in this world? Where is God? He's yeah, present with you, right? So, that, right, there's a very big difference between you trying to get to know somebody better, right, and them actually being with you. Them being with you doesn't mean you know them better, but there's a kind of togetherness that's available in being together that doesn't come from having that kind of reflective. So what does he say? We'll just end on this point. That is why... The, uh, but as for the essence of the Holy and Blessed be He, no thought can comprehend Him at all, except when it apprehends and is clothed in the Torah and its mitzvahs. Only then does it truly apprehend and is clothed in the Holy One, Blessed be He, inasmuch as the Holy One, Blessed be He, and the Torah are one and the same. Okay, now does this mean you get to see God by doing Torah mitzvahs? Is that what he's saying? No, he's saying there's a kind of connection to God that goes, it's a different dynamic than seeing. You know, let's think about it, okay? What would you rather have? What would you rather have? Deeper memories of your grandmother or hanging out with your grandmother? But is it true that when you're hanging out with your grandmother, you might be like, you know, 10 years old and not appreciate it so much and not get it so much? But when, but when you have deep memories, that's true. Where do you think God illuminating the world in the afterlife comes from? God. From the God being with you in this world. So, and here's the thing, and this is the weird thing. When the soul, right, and when you have deep memories of your grandmother, when you're, when you're yourself or a grandmother, what do you long for? Oh, you're not like, ooh, I am so satisfied that I have these deep memories of my grandmother. You want to actually... More. more of her. More of her, right? But more of her is found back when you were 10 and you are like making cookies together. Exactly. Because all that happens at this point is the, all that happens in the afterlife is the ability to reflect on what it means to have God in your life. But when you're reflecting what it means to have God in life, when you're saying that, that's not actually having God in your life, right? Yeah. Reflecting on something is not actually being involved in it. So what is better for, not for God, this is the key, not for God, what's better for you? 
Torah and mitzvahs or the afterlife? Well, if you're interested in God here. If you're interested in God here. Right. Now, we have a word for people that are interested in the observation of something but not the participation thereof. <clears throat> right? Like, there are people that like to watch things but not actually participate right. in them. Right? We call that, you know, if we're being polite, we call it being a spectator. And if we're being more accurate, we call it voyeurism. Who? <laughs> voyeurism. <laughs> Right, where instead of actually living a real life of encountering and engaging other people, you satisfy yourself with viewing other, wa- viewing other people's lives. Right? Well, it's what most people, it's what, it's what television and movies are all about. That's what television and movies are. Instead of engaging in the actual relationships you have in your life, right? So now, what would you call somebody who's like, I don't want to do tournaments in this life, I want to go to the afterlife. Stupid spectator of warrior, right? They missed something fundamental, right? So it's not saying, oh, it's more important to make God happy by being in this world and doing Torah mitzvahs. It's saying, like, if you want to be close to God, you have a relationship with God, like, the afterlife is not helpful for that. But that's like pretty scary because you're only in here for a certain amount of time, so I don't know what that's really telling me. Uh, well, it's a good thing that you're actually here permanently. You just take a short break between the death and resurrection of the dead to reflect on it, and then you come back. No, Resurrection of the dead is happening sooner or later, preferably sooner. No, but in this model, you have to think of the afterlife as being a temporary reflection period. After this, it's not even like afterlife. It's like it's so frustrating. There's nothing good about it. There's nothing enjoyable in the afterlife. I mean, it's like think about it. Think about it. Think about no, but think about no. Think about good memories. Good memories are extremely enjoyable on the one hand, right? Right. But then they're also frustrating because they're not the real thing. No, but then along with that, also knowing that in this world you could have had more, meaning you're looking at it and it's frustrating and being like, in the soul, I could have done more because I could have experienced that. Which is why the soul wants to come back. Right, I'm saying so there's nothing Which is why the ultimate reward is the resurrection of the dead. Right, so that's the thing, but I don't feel like it's not even a temporary reward. I feel like there's well, nothing well, it's enjoyable. It's, 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 in, it's, it's enjoyable, but it's, if you think of it as like, it's enjoyable. But if you think of it as like a final destination, then it doesn't really seem to work anymore. Which is why Chassidic Chabad don't make a big deal about the point is to go to Gan Eden. Not to, but if you don't appreciate the value of Gan Eden, you're also missed something. Like, so like, like, if you don't appreciate the value of, of being able to perceive Hashem illuminating your life, and wishing that, that, you didn't, that all the things that, that make that so difficult, like the physical world, to be free of that, that's not something that doesn't speak to you. Then, like, you don't value your relationship with Hashem, which is why the resurrection comes after Gan Eden, not like now. Yes, and then after that. Uh, when we, like, quote, like, the author was saying, like, I don't want your Gan Eden, I don't want your Gan Eden, like, he's so, I was like, I don't know what it is because he wants here. It's not, it's also selfish. I, I don't like the word selfish to describe anything that's about you. Because I think it misses a point. I've said this before. The problem with selfish is that selfish presupposes a sense of division. That I'm interested in me, and that comes at the expense of any kind of connection to you. What does Altarba say? He says, I don't, I, what Altarba says is, the thing that is most important to me at my core is what? Hashem. It's Hashem. Okay. So then the very dichotomy of is it for me or is it for Hashem is like not resonant with the Altarba. Like that whole way of thinking, oh, I'm doing it, you're doing it for him, you're doing it for yourself, like doesn't make sense to the Alter Rebbe. Because what is the thing that the Alter Rebbe himself at his essence wants? You're saying that he doesn't himself as something separate, but he in his essence is Hashem? That he is Hashem. Whatever, right? Whatever, connected, wants. He wants Hashem, yeah? yeah? 
Okay, so if I want Hashem, and I want Hashem as an end in and of himself, yeah? Well then, like, Hashem is not, Hashem's mind, Hashem is not a means to something else, right? He's not a means to my fulfillment. So a relationship with Hashem, which is about self-fulfillment, is not really having Hashem, is it? You know what I mean? Like, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a childish axiom in place that's like zero is about, is it for me? Is it for you? Maybe it's a win-win. But what, this is coming from a deep sense of identifying with Hashem that like, if I don't have Hashem, I don't have myself. And if I have Hashem, I have myself. But having Hashem doesn't mean it can't be for myself because it's for myself. Hashem is the means to an end, so it can't be for me. It, it's a very different, it's a whole different mode it's a different kind of wanting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What are the prohibitions?